Hello and welcome to the IC Companies and Markets Show. My name's Ian Smith. I'm the company's editor. On this week's podcast, we'll be asking these key questions. What impact has Hurricane Harvey had on the US oil and gas sector? Does Aveva's reverse takeover by Schneider Electric present good value for shareholders? How is music consumption changing and how can investors access the changing market? And we'll be calling Simon Thompson again to discuss a couple of small caps with earnings momentum. Joining me in the studio today are our podcast editor, Alex Newman. How are you doing, Alex? I'm, I'm good, thanks, Ian. And we also have our specialist writer, Harriet Klarfeld. Hi, Harriet. Hi, Ian. Alex, let's start with you, because uh, you've taken stock of Hurricane Harvey a fortnight since it hit um, the US mainland, and Houston, Texas has been right at the, the centre mm. uh, of the worst of the damage. Now, we're not going to talk too much about the human impact, but we're going to talk about the impact on some of the oil and gas infrastructure, uh, perhaps starting offshore. Is that the right place to start? Yeah, I suppose that's where the hurricane's path first hit uh, the oil and gas infrastructure uh, in the Gulf Coast, which is incredibly dense. And in the last 10 years, I mean, this is part of the part of the problem, uh, allegedly, that um, that Houston's been such a boom town in the last 10 years because of the, the shale revolution, that that's almost that, that's ended up accelerating the, the effect of the, the flooding in the city there partly because so, the partly because the expanding road infrastructure ha- has kind of reduced uh, those barriers to the the path of the water absolutely yeah 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 but i mean you asked about uh, offshore so i mean the the path went through initially the uh, uh, many where many of the offshore rigs are that resulted in in a, a number of closures including uh, shell had to close two of their their major platforms but then you know the real the real impact obviously was on land and you know there's houston and louisiana and and the Te- uh, Southeast Texas is the centre of uh, the US refining uh, capacity. So we had a number of the largest refineries uh, completely offline. As we're speaking now, it's only now that um, that Shell is bringing its its Deer Park refinery back online. That's uh, depending on who you ask. That's the second or third largest refinery in the US. Um, so there was, you know, there was a huge, huge initial uh, impact uh, on, on the industry. And we saw the gasoline price uh, spike. Has it had no impact on the underlying crude price, I'd imagine? Uh, well, I mean, initially this was seen as uh, quite bearish for crude because the expectation was that the refineries would inevitably reduce their demand for crude. That would uh, lead to an immediate drop in in uh, in crude prices. I mean that that hasn't quite uh, materialised because generally the, the the refineries have got back up to speed quite quickly. So we've actually seen a bit of a weirdly a bit of a bump in the in the in the crude price. Okay, and beyond the impact on the refineries, where else have we seen damage? Yeah, well, um, there's I mean a number of uh, producers have had to uh, shut in. I mean most notably for London invest- investors, there's a company called uh, Pantheon Resources, which trade on traded on AIM. They have some drilling projects in uh, in the, the the Tyler and Polk counties northeast of Houston. They issued a uh, statement on the 30th of August saying that they had had to suspend their operations there. They still haven't updated the market on what the potential flooding damage uh, may have been to uh, to their operations. Obviously, it's going to push back their drilling program by a few weeks, but that is the clearest and uh, in terms of valuations of of oil and gas companies. Uh, listed in, in London that's that's probably going to be the most visible uh, impact so in, in many ways I mean this this hasn't although, although obviously the, the human cost you've uh, alluded to and the broader economic cost to uh, Houston the US is enormous I mean the oil and gas industry 
doesn't seem to have been too terribly hit. Do you think that we're going to have to factor in these extreme weather events when we are considering the growth of the US onshore market, which has been a major factor in the oil price and and therefore impacts on a lot of UK companies? Do you think that there has been any kind of shift here in terms of the way that we look at uh, the prospects of this industry? Absolutely. I mean, the focus, the news focus now is inevitably on the recovery and the speed of the recovery. Longer term, I mean, I think this presents huge ramifications to the industry because particularly in this this year, it seems like we have a, it's the hurricane season has, has, has got multiple extreme weather events, uh, which have either happened or are coming and the threat that that poses uh, to, to the, the Gulf Coast. I mean, if we listen to the scientists and, and you know, uh, the meteor, meteorological forecasts, we get the impression that climate change is only going to make these events more likely. It's going to increase their impact. And so we're going to be talking less about one in a thousand year flooding events or, or, or storm events and, you know, every few years. So while it may sound like, a, a, you know, we're or I'm a reading too much into one weather event here and it, therefore drawing out its um, implications for the, uh, the industry, uh, too forcefully. I mean, this is this is a real, real threat to the the U.S. energy industry, uh, which is completely centred in the eye of the the eye of the storm, and it will be uh, for you know the foreseeable future. Fascinating. Thanks very much, Alex. Harriet, I'd like to bring you in here. So another big story this week has been Aveva, uh, which is uh, subject to a reverse takeover, an agreed reverse takeover by Schneider Electric. Give us some of the background here to this deal, which is a big one for London London investors. Sure. So, um, as you mentioned, it was announced on Tuesday that an agreement had been reached between Aviva and Schneider Electric's software business to combine. It's a deal valued at about £3 billion, so it's pretty big. There is an interesting background to this deal in that it's essentially third time lucky, potentially, for the two companies. So they first entered talks, I believe, in 2015. And those talks were terminated. They then picked up again in 2016 during the summer and then were terminated, I think, about two days later. And was, so, and was that concerns over in, integrating the businesses? What do you think? Yes, I think it was, as far as we were led to believe, it was around the integration of the businesses. But I think the terms weren't quite satisfactory. So, and in terms of the businesses, how similar are they in terms of the software that they sell? So... Aviva, so Aviva is obviously listed in London and it provides solutions to some of the world's largest engineering companies. Um, so it's engineering software, perhaps around, yeah, perhaps around big projects. So it suffered from the oil and gas exactly. um, retrenchment. And Schneider's business that will be combined with Aviva also has oil and gas exposure. Um, but it'll bring in exposure for Aviva to other areas as well. For example, food and beverages and pharmaceuticals, among other sort of diversifying sectors, which will be pretty good for Aviva shareholders. In terms of whether we say it is good value or not, I mean, there are two sides to this deal. First of all, when Schneider, when Schneider's software business combines with Aviva, um, Schneider, if it completes, will get a 60% stake in the combined sort of enlarged company. That obviously gives it a controlling share um, and Aviva would be left with 40%. That share of 60%, they think, will be a pro- worth approximately £1.7 billion. So it's pretty huge. But there is a significant payout to Aviva's shareholders. So in total, in aggregate, they think it'll be up to £10.14 per share, which we see as a pretty good return to Aviva's shareholders if the deal completes. 
I suppose the counter argument is that this only takes the uh, shareholders back to kind of 2013 levels in terms of the share uh, price. That the you could see it as a company that has been suffering from a decline, a cyclical decline in one of its markets or downturn in one of its markets, I should say. Um, how much value is does this actually pre- present over the longer term for uh, Aviva shareholders that bought in, you know, a while ago? Sure. Well, I think going forward, the boards of both companies really see much fa- much greater sort of further growth potential, particularly because Aviva will have more exposure to the North American market. And and they said that together the company will be the companies will form a global leader in engineering, design, and industrial software. They've also used other encouraging language, like it's going to have scale and relevance in key markets, as well as an extensive technology portfolio. So these are all obviously positive words. And is it more meaningful than that? Do you do you, do you think there's there's stuff behind that positive words? It, it is going to meaningfully diversify the group and thus create a, a more uh, solid business for shareholders over the longer term. I do believe so, and I think that the fact that they have now tried this three times suggests they do still real, see real value in this deal. Um, so I think it's not just a case for return to shareholders. I think there is going to be much greater growth potential going forward. So we've said accept. Okay. Another question that will doubtless be asked around this deal, is this another case of a, a UK tech company uh, being bought because of the decline in sterling? And you said there's been a few attempts now. This is being the third attempt to bring these two businesses businesses together. Uh, do, do you subscribe to this view that UK companies have become more vulnerable targets because of sterling's devaluation? I think it's a difficult question to answer. Schneider is obviously a French business. And as you say, it is the third time. But I think importantly, the last two times that talks were announced between the two companies, they were actually before the Brexit vote took place at the end of June last year. So Schneider Electric obviously saw value in combining with Aviva before we voted to leave the EU. Um, Obviously, might look more attractive now. And it, it does seem interesting that the deal has finally been agreed after the fact of the Brexit vote. And yes, there have been other takeovers, for example, SoftBank recently and um, arms, arm holdings. But I think it, it may be an opportunity, opportunistic move to take over a UK tech company. At the same time, we do see more value for Aviva shareholders going forward. So mutually beneficial. And the share price moves substantially on the news being announced. Uh, interestingly, you uh, wrote about uh, Wellplay and Vantiv. And in that um, case, Wellplay shareholders managed to push for slightly better terms in the deal, given that it was billed as a, a merger. I wonder whether uh, there'll be any pushback from Aviva's shareholders about the combined ownership, um, given that they are going to be you know, 40% owners yes. in the combined business. Well, I think there might be. I'm, you know, there's no complete certainty yet to this deal, and I think the vote will, there'll be a shareholder vote on the 29th of September at the company's general meeting. But I think with WorldPay, obviously, shareholders did see the potential for greater value um, as part of the acquisition. I think here, um, as you said, the share price rose a third on the day that the deal was announced. Investors were obviously enthusiastic about the news by the looks of things. And I also think quite interestingly, there's a clause in the terms of the agreement whereby Schneider can't raise or it's been limited from sort of increasing its stake in the company beyond 60% for about three and a half years. So that should give some sort of reassurance to Aviva shareholders, I think, for the time being. Thank you very much. And let's just move over to the uh, sector focus that you've written this week. I'd like to kind of just talk about it quite briefly because we're going to have Simon on the line. But it's fair to say that the way that we consume music has changed substantially. I'm a user of one of the services uh, provided uh, by the companies in this uh, sector focus. I won't say which one, but 
it's interesting. A lot of uh, more kind of digital consumption, subscription services has taken off. People were concerned um, that with the decline in the CD, the rise of um, kind of digital downloads of music, that music labels would be squeezed out. But in fact, the the industry has transitioned uh, over the longer term quite effectively to selling online. Uh, if you're an investor, you still really just restricted to buying into Apple or Amazon if you want access to the kind of changing music environment? Well, I think um, what we've explored in the sector focus is actually the various ways in which you can buy into the music industry as an investor. Obviously, a key part of that is looking at the streaming companies. And you've mentioned Apple and Amazon. They have music subsidiaries respectively called Apple Music and Amazon Music. But apart from that, we also have the private company Spotify. There has been some speculation in the media over the last few months that Spotify might undergo a direct listing on the New York Stock Exchange. From from what it sounds like, that would entail um, potential investors buying shares from existing shareholders um, with no new capital raised. Um, I don't believe that's been confirmed, but I think that would obviously offer an alternative to investors albeit on the Amer- in the American market. It would demonstrate whether there really is supply of capital to these businesses, uh, given the competitive challenges. Exactly. And I think if you take a look at Spotify's most recent full-year results, um, which obviously um, represent the company as a private company, the, their losses have been widening. Um, and so that it will be interesting to see how it could fare as a public business if that does happen. I suppose one of the issues with buying into Apple or Amazon uh, based on the trend towards streaming music is that that's just one part of these absolutely huge businesses that's not a determinant of the share price. Exactly. And I think we, we said recently in an article about Amazon, about Apple even, that um, it does have this sort of significant cash pile and music is just one part of this huge diversified technology giant so that it should really benefit from the fact that there seems to be unlimited capital to sort of invest in that sector. But when it comes to Apple, they are one of the things they're managing to do is to uh, increase their services revenue. So they are, it is meaningful for them that they mm. are managing to grow this business. You also picked up on a number of kind of the smaller companies that provide services or equipment to various parts of the industry. And I know you'll be a lot of readers that are involved in, in, in those. Pick out a couple for us in terms of which companies you think um, might stand the test of time in terms of their providing yeah, equipment or services that you think might last. Sure. So, um, Apart from streaming, there's also live music, entertainment. Um, I mean, in the US, the giant is Live Nation. But over here on the AIM market, there is Accesso Technology. Um, that has a cloud-based technology platform called Showware, which offers ticketing and queuing solutions. And that is a company that we look at in more detail in the sector focus. We think it could be quite interesting. And there's also Focusrite, which sells software and hardware to a combination of sort of professional musicians and also complete beginners. And I think an analyst I spoke to referred to these people as bedroom guitarists. Yeah, bedroom musicians is the yeah. Uh, yeah, sometimes a f- familiar or uh, sneering term applied I, to uh, people like me who record music <laughs> in their house. Um, and also Gear for, for Music, another exactly. uh, online retailer that I've, I've actually used recently. So there's, there's a few of those options. Another company that I think is quite interesting that I just want to touch on is EVR Holdings, uh, which provides, um, well, helps create kind of virtual reality music content um yeah talk to us a little bit about them sure so um evr floated on the aim market last year and um it does exactly what you just said it provides virtual reality music content um evr has a platform called melody vr it hasn't actually launched yet it's still in the sort of beta testing stages and um their chief executive anthony matchett says it'll really be able to launch once the vr headset market becomes more buoyant 
so around sort of 25 million to 30 million headsets. It's interesting that this product, which will allow people to experience sort of music concerts via virtual reality, really depends on the VR market taking off. Um, but we think it could be potentially a very interesting prospect. I think this is fascinating. I watched a Gorillaz music video on just a simple Google headset using uh, one of the yeah, Google Android uh, operated phones. And it's, it's a very good experience. So I really recommend any listener to give it a go. Just in that um, you're looking around, there's characters from the Gorillaz you know, music uh, universe or whatever, the, the band, the animated characters kind of all around you. And it does create a very immersive experience, kind of audio and visual. So I don't, I, I've, Personally, I thought that was quite impressive and it would be interesting to see how that market develops if we move towards a point where we do uh, consume more music in a kind of virtual reality and mixed with a kind of visual 3D environment, then the potential market is quite large. Yeah, I think hopefully. And I think, you know, it does offer an alternative to people who might not be able necessarily to afford concert tickets or might not be able to get to their favourite sort of musician. They can sit on their sofa at home and experience a concert from the comfort of their own TV room. Excellent. Thanks a lot. And now joining us on the line is our stock picking columnist, Simon Thompson. How are you doing, Simon? I'm doing well. Incredibly busy, like everyone else on the um, IC's company's team at the moment. So it's, um, it's the start of the tsunami of the results season. And not to mention the uh, finale of the test series. Oh, absolutely. That, that, that could be a nail-biter if it's anything like the, uh, the, the last one up in, uh, up in Manchester. Yeah, very much looking forward to that. Okay, what are we what are we highlighting this week from your column? There's a couple of companies. One of which is Ramsden's Holdings. It's a diversified, um, fast-growing financial services company. Joined AIM back in February. I spotted a rather upbeat trading statement in April when the house broker Liberum Capital upgraded its forecast quite quite tremendously. Uh, covered the results back in June. Uh, really impressed by the management team. Put the readers in at 132 pence. Target price of 180. Well, that target price is long gone. Um, I, I've had to upgrade it after what happened at the end of last week when the the company came out with a trading update and uh, Liberum, having upgraded their earnings forecast and profit forecast by 13% back in April, have just increased them by 20% um, again. So um, for the year-on-year growth to the year in March 2018, we're looking at profits going up from roughly 4 million to almost 6 million and earnings from 10 pence to 15.3. Stock price is 169 at the moment, which means they're trading in 11 times forward earnings. Um, cash is building. Cash in the bank is going to increase roughly from about £9.5 million pounds up to £13. £13 million pounds is a quarter of the market cap. So I reckon this company's trading on net of cash in the balance sheet and enterprise value for about five times cash profits. That's incredibly cheap. But more importantly, it's the drivers of, uh, of this business. 40% of the gross profit forecast, gross profit £27 million, pounds. Um, but 3% of that is going to come from a foreign currency arm. This is basically um, what Travelex, M&S, the supermarkets do provide foreign currency to um, to people going abroad. Well, Ramsden, the last financial year, exchanged over £400 million worth of currency with more than 600,000 retail clients. That gives it roughly a 3% market share of the £13 billion foreign currency travel markets. 
Um, I noticed that you call it a financial services um, provider in, in, in your introductory remarks there in, in, in the column. Um, for some people, this they might see Ramsons as a pawnbroker that does a bit of gold buying. But what you're saying is that actually that they do substantially more than that. Uh, and the, it, so the prospects for growth in the um, foreign exchange, foreign currency arm, for example, you're very positive on. Oh, no, they're, they're tremendous. I mean, basically, uh, having spoken to the directors, um, they capture a 10 to 12% market share where they've got high street presence. They've got 127 outlets. These are spread across Scotland, northeast of England. They're Middlebrose-based. Um, they've also got outlets in Wales as well. So, But how good are they to the, the gold price in terms of the, the gold buying business? Obviously, you also make the comparison to their large, large arrival H&T, and that's a present concern, isn't it, for investors in that business? No, they, they do. I mean, they, they do. I mean, basically, the, um, the gold price in sterling terms has gone up 13% um, since December. Um, it's roughly 1030 pounds a uh, troy ounce um, that's only about 12 percent off the all-time high reached in september 2011 and that's mainly because of sterling's devaluation um the the gold um size of things which is basically pawn breaking that's where they make um roughly 20 percent of their money from uh, so it's quite it, it's a big part of the business but it's not a huge part of the business um but but when the gold price is actually rising this this allows them to make bigger pledges. I mean, their average pledge size isn't huge. It's only about £192. They've got 33,000 clients. The pledge book is only £6 million. The industry pledge book is roughly £150 million. So they've got a small market share. Um, they, they know their customers quite well. 85% of their customers actually redeem their pledges. So the problems happen when they have to actually sell the, the items and actually try and recoup the money. But when, when the gold price is rising... Um, that mitigates the chance of actually losing money. And the other thing that they've been doing quite sensibly is they've been expanding their retail sites through these 127 outlets, so jewellery, um, retail sales, and they've been buying goods, refurbishing them, and selling them through the outlets. Um, so that, that side of the business is actually increasing too. So in, in terms of the pawnbroking side, it, it's less than a fifth of the business. So, um, I, yeah, I, I do consider it as a... a financial services company and do you and you, so you think the discount to H&T is undeserved um, it is I'm very keen on H&T I included it in my 2017 bargain share portfolio and you know the shares have done well but I think there's another probably 15% upside in H&T share price to my target price of 375 pence H&T is trading on an enterprise value to cash profit multiple of eight times Ramsden is only five times um, I've looked at the numbers again, and I reckon fair equity valuation for Ramsden is about 200 pence a share compared with the share price at the moment of 169. So that gives you roughly 15% more upside. So although readers have done well, um, I think there is more upside. There's also 4% plus dividend yields, prospective dividend yields. So there is an income on offer, and it's got all that cash in the bank. Okay, we've got time for one more. What, what should we pick out? Um, the other one that really caught me on, my eye this, this week, and I just had a really lengthy conversation with the uh, finance director and chief executive, is then traded Gamma Aviation. It's an operator of privately owned jet aircraft. It's got a air division and uh, ground services division. Back in February, it did an interesting deal with BBA Aviation to basically merge their 
U.S. activities into um, one one business, and the benefits of that are actually coming through. I mean, the um, um, the figures from that business alone, uh, the operating profits increased by 150 percent to six million dollars, or roughly half the total in the uh, the first half of the year. But it was the margin improvement that caught my eye. Um, that increased by 90 basis points to 3.1% and the target is 5%. And this is a business that generated $119 million worth of uh, revenue in the first half. So obviously, if they can get those margins to keep on climbing, then on that type of revenue, you're looking at quite a big profit uplift. The other parts of the business are, are doing well as well. The um, Grand services business in Europe was restructured and profits have um, increased quite sharply there. They've exited underperforming contracts last year in the European air arm, and as a result of that, margins more or less trebled. Cash generation stands out quite quite markedly. Um, operating cash flow is roughly $5.7 million that compared to the outflow last year. Um, they sold some aircraft, legacy aircraft that they had in the books. As a result, net debt, which was roughly $20 million at the start of the year, is expected to fall to $8 million by the end of the year. And the benefit of that is twofold. One, for the dividend, but if you've got lowly geared balance sheets and um, lots of balance sheet flexibility, then it allows the board to actually be more generous. But, but also, um, the, the, the other thing is that with very low balance sheet gearing, the, the company can look at potential acquisitions, and I discussed that quite at length with the, the directors of the company. So it's, it's not expensive. It's roughly trading on 10 times earnings. They've been very bullish on, on it all year. It's just broken out of a key resistance level at £2.50, I reckon. What's the risk here with this company? Is it that uh, businesses don't want to uh, or stop spending out on uh, you know, jetting their executives around the place? Yeah, I mean, you, you've got economic risk. So um, with a large part in the US, it's been benefiting from the the upturn that we've seen in, in the US economy over the last seven, eight, nine years. If there's, we've also got Far Eastern business, which is a fledgling business. But, but all, all the data that we're seeing, you know, be it from Europe as well, is it's actually quite positive. So, yeah, obviously, if there's a retrenchment of corporations in terms of their spending, that, that would have a negative impact. But at the present time, there's, there's no sign of that. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Simon, and enjoy the test match. I, I will do, and uh, all the best for the weekend. Yeah, until next week. And that's about all we have time for this week. Uh, elsewhere in the issue, which is £4.90 and all good uh, news agents, uh, our big cover feature this week, where we have two linked features, 10 years on from uh, the collapse of Northern Rock, is the retail banking sector fixed in the UK? Big question. Uh, so Philip Ryland has written a really interesting feature, looking back at the events of 2007 and... Um, what has happened to some of the players since uh, and some of the persons involved. And then Emma Powell, our news editor, has written a very interesting analysis of the listed players now and how they've changed their how they've changed their businesses since and um, how solid they seem uh, as we stand. So do have a read of that. As I say, we've got a music sector focus. There's plenty more news. There's plenty of results. Uh, and I've written a column too if you get really bored. Thanks a lot and we'll speak to you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.